We're grateful for our friend Atticus and him sharing his gospel conversation story with us as we wrap up Lessons on the Road today, a series that's about Jesus on the Maus Road and how that's an example to us of gospel conversations. If you've got a story, we want to hear your story. So we're going to have a video crew here uh, in just a couple of weeks uh, on Wednesday, May the 12th, uh, filming some stories of uh, some of you as well uh, so we can add those to the collection so we can encourage and bless and help equip one another as we can continue to walk with people on the road as well. But let me be honest, I know what probably got your attention when he launched into his story because it's what got mine. Did you catch he's a snake breeder? Anybody else, right? You're like, whoa, that's a unique place to start a gospel conversation story, right? Every time I think about snakes, I always go back to a family devotional we were having. We were studying Genesis 3 with the kids. Ella was about five years old at the time and Ella turned to me and she said, dad, why did Eve talk to the serpent? She was like, if a talking snake ever comes to me, I'm just going to scream and run the other direction. And if Eve would have done that, we wouldn't have all of these problems we have today. I was like, preach, girl, right? Like, she's not wrong. But isn't it amazing that God can use our hobbies, our interests, even if they're snake breeding, right, to connect to other people. Did you hear other threads in that story? Music Mondays, what we post on social media from our worship leaders, right? God used those dots, right, to be able to connect to this life. Four years, four years Atticus walked with this man through gospel conversations until he was ready to accept Christ, become a part of a local church. What a great model and example for us that is. And what good news, right? That God can redeem our conversations, our hobbies, our opportunities. When we look for them, when we walk along other, with others, on the road, whatever they're experiencing or going through in life. What an amazing opportunity he presents to us. And that is modeled for us in the story of the Emmaus Road. So this is our third and final week in Lessons on the Road. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Luke 24. We're going to pick up the story today in verses 28 through 35. So they came near the village where they were going. And he, being Jesus, gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us when he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, just like Cleopas and his companion, you opened their eyes to your presence and the, through the power of your word. And I pray that the same is true of us today. That through your spirit and through your word, you will open up our eyes to our need for the gospel and the opportunity that we have to share that gospel good news with others. So Lord, we thank you that you modeled for us on the Emmaus Road what this can look like. Would we be faithful and obedient to follow you? So open our eyes, our ears, 
our hearts, and most importantly, our lives to you in this place, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we begin to think about this idea of gospel conversations, one of the the word pictures that's in our head around this idea of evangelism, that's what we used to call it, that's kind of the traditional name for sharing the good news of Jesus with others. One of the word pictures that pops in our mind, unfortunately, is this one. Put it on the screen for you, right? So here is the salesman about to do his thing. And it's sad and we could spend a lot of time going into details of why this is what pops into people's mind. But that is the work of the enemy. What we need is a better word picture. And I think a better word picture for evangelism, for gospel conversations, is this one. A trail guide. Walking with someone on the journey. As many of you know, my wife is an avid hiker. She and some ladies from our church are actually out on the Appalachian Trail right now. Uh, And so they are enjoying that time together. Yes, she can kick my tail, right? She's tougher than I am, right? Backpacking and spending all this time hiking. But when she returns, inevitably, people begin to contact her. Hey, what was it like this year? Hey, are there sections of the trail that you think that, you know, would be fun to do? Hey, are there hiking trails around here that would be good for me and my kids because we hike as a family? What kind of shoes do you wear, right? What kind of gear do you take with you for a trip like that? And she becomes this de facto expert. Why? Because she's walked the trail. Because she's walked on that journey. In the same way, those of us who walk with Jesus, we have an opportunity to come alongside of others who are lost and searching to help point them to Jesus as well. Because we have walked the road out of the overflow of our own time in the word and our experience in the gospel and our time with Jesus, we get to point others along the way. And that's the exact word picture that we have in Luke chapter 24 as Jesus is walking with Cleopas and his companion, these two followers of Jesus, as they leave Jerusalem headed for Emmaus. And so what we want to be sure that we do is remember our conversation, our definition of a gospel conversation. I want to put it on the screen for you one more time. This is sharing the good news of Jesus. That's what Jesus did, right? As he came alongside of them on the road, heard what they were going through, and was able to complete their incomplete version of the story. We want to walk alongside with people and tell them the good news of Jesus. We do that with those who are lost and searching. Those people are everywhere in our lives, especially right now. The last year and the events of the last year have have really been tumultuous in many lives. Just life as we know it. People are hurting and they're looking for answers. And so when we come alongside of them the way that Jesus did, when we listen well, when we ask good questions, well, that opens up the doors of opportunity for us to share that good news. And as you heard in the video, Atticus said what? I just trusted the Holy Spirit, right, to bring about the results. You and I aren't responsible for the results. Let's remember that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But you and I are responsible to be faithful to tell because he's commanded us and called us to be faithful his witnesses. So what I've found as a pastor is most of us sitting in this room, most of us watching at home online, right? We don't have a want to problem. We want to be used by Jesus to to point others to him. But what we struggle with is the how to. And it's why I love the practicalities of this story in Luke 24. As I told you last week, it's why it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Because on the Emmaus Road, Jesus shows us how to reach the lost and searching. So point number one, to recap, we walk the road of grief with them. We walk with people 
who are searching and hurting and disillusioned. Quick recap, right? What a day it has been. If you go back to to Friday, what we now call Good Friday, Jesus had been crucified. He had been buried in a tomb. And so on that, what we call Silent Saturday, his followers, his disciples were confused. They were disoriented. They thought they might be the next to be killed or executed by the Romans and the Jews. And so they were hiding out behind locked doors. They scattered throughout the city of Jerusalem. And it was Sabbath for the Jewish people, meaning you can't work. You can't walk, you don't go anywhere, you sit. So they had had a whole day, right, just on that silent Saturday to sit in their grief and confusion and pain. And then on Sunday, things began to happen. Many of them began to scatter. There became rumors that Jesus has risen from the dead, that some women had gone to the tomb and and they had heard from the angels. And so that just added to the confusion in the moment. And what I love about this story is the grace of Jesus. It shows his grace and care because of all the places he could have been, right? He could have called a press conference with the Jerusalem Times and and announced his resurrection to the world. He could have appeared in the halls of power. He could have gone anywhere he wanted to. But where do we find Jesus, the resurrected Jesus? Walking with two of his disillusioned and discouraged disciples. This mysterious traveler, they don't recognize it's him. At first, they're prevented from knowing it's him. And so Jesus engages them. It's this conversation. As the conversation goes, he begins to fill in the blanks for them. He teaches them, as we looked at last week, how all the Old Testament was a fulfillment of him. That that all the scriptures were pointing to him. And so in this moment, as they're walking, we need to pay attention to what Jesus did because we need to follow his example. I love what one author has to share. She says this, when people are willing to stop and tell us where they hurt, we need to number one, praise God for it. Number two, stop what we are doing and shut our mouths. And number three, listen with care. Because when someone is willing to finally open up to us, we need to listen well. I will argue that in a world in which everybody is trying to cram a message down our throat, in which everybody is trying to virtue signal, in which everybody is trying to press their agenda on us and all the media and all the talking heads and all of the posts on social media all of the time, when we stop to listen to someone else, unpack their heart and what they're going through, that is a radical act of love. And as we lean in and listen well, that opens the door for gospel opportunity, which leads us to point two this morning, which is this. We accept the invitation when it comes. We accept the invitation into their lives when it comes. So picking up the story where we read in verse 28, they near the village where they were going and Jesus gave the impression that he was going farther, right? He's got places to go. He's got people to see, but they urged him. A word that literally almost implies force, right? They almost forced him. Stay with us because it's almost evening and the day is almost over. So he went in and he stayed with them. Now, a couple of things. One, in the ancient Middle East, even in the Middle East to these days, it's dangerous to travel at night. And so there's a practical aspect to this. If you have a place for someone to stay, it really doesn't matter who they are. You're supposed to open your home to them. It's for their own personal safety. But to take it a step further, we know that the Bible talks about hospitality a lot. That one of the threads in scripture is the opening of our homes, the giving and sharing of our resources, and the opening of our lives to those who might be in need, even to those who are in emotional need. 
and those who have hurts. And so one of the remarkable things that we see in the Bible is a through line all the way back from Abraham, right, who, who, who played host to a group of angels all the way to Paul who writes in Romans 15, 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. We are called to leverage our homes and our time, both of which are given to us by God for the gospel. A lot of us suffer, right, from a Western mentality that what's mine is mine and I'm gonna use it for me and mine. When in reality, if you stop to think about it, who gives us our homes? It's the Lord. Who gives us our time, right? The air that we breathe. It's the Lord. And so the reality is, is that God's people throughout history have always seen hospitality as one of the ways to open the door to what God might be doing in someone's life. Growing up, my little hometown in South Central Illinois, we didn't have a lot of space. We didn't have a big house. My mom was an excellent cook, however. And so when traveling evangelists, when singers, when missionaries, when youth choirs passing through town would sing, my parents always opened up their home. I didn't realize it until I was older, right, that they, they slept in the bed that me and my brother slept in, right, which was probably not that comfortable for them. But the reality is, is my parents, their love and their warmth and their hospitality, everybody seemed to have a great time. I remember they would linger and tell stories around our dining room table late at night. And a lot of the stories I first heard about what the gospel was doing all throughout the world came from me as a kid just listening in. Part of what shaped me as a disciple, right, was that my, my parents, by having these people in our home, showed me a picture of the gospel that was bigger than my little town that I didn't get outside of very much as a kid, that was bigger than just my home church. I heard stories of what God was doing all throughout the world. And so what an opportunity to see our homes as ministry centers. An author by the name of Rosaria Butterfield has written a book. I love this title, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And I would encourage you to look up her testimony, which is powerful online, but she says this in the book, radically ordinary hospitality is using your Christian home as a daily means of turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into the family of God. Those who live out hospitality see their homes not as theirs, but as God's gift to further his kingdoms. They open doors, they seek opportunity. And that's exactly what Cleopas and his companion did. By opening the door to this mysterious traveler, right? They took a risk. Remember, to this point, they didn't know exactly who this guy was. They didn't realize it was Jesus. But in taking that risk, it opened up the door of possibility of what God could continue to do in this conversation. And I'll argue that this is directly related to the decision we make every day to welcome Jesus into our day. You and I all have the opportunity every day through his word and our quiet time through prayer to welcome Jesus into our heart. And I think as we do that and we're more aware of him and his presence, then we are more apt throughout our days to create space and time, to create a space at our dinner table for those who are in need. We're more attuned to those spiritual needs as we walk with others. So the two things are connected. When you and I welcome Jesus in, then we see people the way that Jesus sees them. And Jesus didn't hurry off. He had time to go in. And we have to ask the hard question of ourselves, especially right now in our culture. Have we filled our lives so full that we can't take the time to accept the invitation of others? Because people want to talk to those who know Jesus. They want to know what he has to offer. So are we ready to accept the invitation when it comes? Movement three in the story, how Jesus shows us how. Share meals and life together. Anybody like to eat? Can I get an amen? 
right? Amen. Did you realize that's one of the best ways to have gospel conversations is sharing a meal with someone. It says there that they were seated and reclined at the table and that's when he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. So we know that now, right, people that we eat meals with, we are sharing with them socially. We know in the first century that was even more pronounced because they had a very defined social strata, who you ate with, who you didn't. And one of the remarkable things about the ministry of Jesus is we see him with the insiders, his disciples, eating meals, equipping them, teaching them. But we also see Jesus eating and spending significant amounts of time with outsiders, with the so-called tax collectors and sinners to the point, right, that it offended the Pharisees because Jesus was breaking all of their rules and he was breaking their boxes that they had put around people. And when you invite someone to share a meal with you, right, those barriers go down. You're talking to a real live person created in the image of God face to face. And as you share table fellowship, the Holy Spirit moves in those conversations, often in powerful ways. I love one commentator who quipped, Jesus' ministry was really a series of social engagements punctuated by his sermons and miracles. And what was unique about this moment was that usually the host, probably Cleopas, right, would have taken the lead in grabbing the bread, blessing it, and breaking it. But here, Jesus takes the lead. And that's the way it should always be, shouldn't it? Jesus takes the lead. And there's something about this moment. Maybe it's the way he said the blessing, the way he broke the bread. Maybe, as some commentators have noted, it's as he reached for the bread, they saw his nail-scarred hands. Whatever it was, Luke is clear. It's not just the circumstances, but it's also the Holy Spirit that clicks something into place. And it's at this moment that they have that aha moment. And when you walk with others through life, when you accept the invitation, right, that they offer to enter into their story, into their grief, into their pain, as you're walking with them and you're often sharing a meal, sometimes it's in that moment that it clicks into place when the Holy Spirit begins to move and he begins to work. I love that this is the moment when their eyes were opened and they get it. And then what happens? Jesus disappeared from their sight. Now I want to lean into this short section of this verse for just a minute because I think it signals something important to us, something about our hope. On Easter, I told you that the resurrection, right, that's when hope in person stepped forward from the future into our present. And that's exactly what's happening here. You see, Jesus disappeared, yet we know his body was flesh and blood because he ate with the disciples, he showed them his scars, and yet his body was transformed in a powerful way into the resurrected body of Jesus. And the same is true for all of us, and we all have that hope. This week we lost a member of our congregation, one of our deacons, Larry Breckenridge, went home to be with the Lord. And in verses like this, right, in the middle of our grief, as a church family, our hope increases. Why? Because we know that's not the end of the story for Larry, nor for anyone who's in the Lord. Because Jesus went ahead of us in the resurrection. One day, guess what? We'll be resurrected too. And our bodies, our bodies will be like Jesus's. His was the prototype. He went first. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 22. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all will die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Paul goes on to write in that same passage, so death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the ability of the resurrected body of Jesus to appear and disappear. The fact that it is flesh and blood and yet at the same time it is transposed into something higher, almost unimaginable to us. Well, that's a foretaste of what's going to happen to our bodies. And I don't know about you, but in my mid-40s, I can't wait for my body to be transformed into glory. Can I get an amen? Right? As one of my mentors says in your 40s, right? It's like an old car. Still works, but stuff starts going wrong. And that's the way I feel some days. But what a picture of hope for us. And I don't want to go too deep with you, but I've been reading some articles on quantum physics. And here's one of the things that I find so cool. Only now are our most gifted mathematicians understanding about multiple dimensions. How can Jesus appear and disappear, reappear and show up in different places? Well, you and I in our earthly bodies are limited by time and space. But Jesus in his resurrection body is not limited by the laws that he created to govern nature, amen? And so let that blow your mind for a minute. That's a picture of what our resurrected bodies are going to be. What an amazing God we serve. And at that moment, these disciples get it, right? The Holy Spirit turns on the lights. Jesus, he's gone because he's got work to do. He's got more appearances to be able to make. I love this truth because in this moment, it's at this sacred meal in which their eyes were open. And scholars love to debate, was this the Lord's Supper? Was it not, right? There's no cup that Luke talks about. But I think the signals are clear. Just as it says in John chapter 6, verse 35, that Jesus is the bread of life. Those who come to him will never again hunger in the same way this is designed to show us that he is what we need. So we share our meals and we don't just share food, right? But around that table, we share life together. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, it delighted me to share not only the gospel, but my very life with you as well. And when we do that well, that's honoring to Christ. And that's another step on the road. This leads us to our fourth point this morning, which is this. We see the risen Christ at work through his word and through his presence. Let's be honest, if you're like me, I'm a little jealous of these guys. I'm a little jealous of Cleopas and his companion. Why? Because they got to see with their eyes the resurrected Jesus. They got to hear with their ears as he opened up the word and he's, he unpacked the scripture with them, connecting all of the dots. As I told you last week, it's the story I think in the Bible I most would want to be witness to. But the reality is for you and I, as I thought about it this week, is this. Do you realize that you and I can experience Christ in the same way? That we get to see the risen Christ at work through his word and his presence? First of all, what did they say as they realized the conversation that Jesus had with them, that it was actually him. In verse 32, they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Now, as I mentioned, my wife's out of town. That means we might be eating out a little more than normal this weekend, me and the kids. So last night I pulled out the app and I ordered up some Chipotle. Can I get an amen? 
this morning, my heart was burning within me. (laughs) To be clear, that's not, right, the kind of heartburn that Cleopas and his friend are talking about. It's the kind that happens when you open up God's word and it comes alive to you. It's that moment, right, when what's going on in your life, you're desperate for guidance, for interpretation, and you open up God's word, you hear a sermon, you go to Bible study or your life group, and you hear exactly what needs to intersect your life. It's that aha moment. And I really believe that's one of the reasons the Spirit didn't allow Cleopas and his friend to hear and to understand until they had first heard Jesus unpack all of this with them. Because then at that moment, we're like, okay, Jesus, right? Just, you know, I get it. <laughs> Let's move on. No, they, they wanted us to understand. Luke wants us to grasp that we can experience, right, Jesus in the same way. I don't know about you guys, but I get fired up when I'm in the Word. It was funny because after last week's passage, which is one of my favorites, several of you commented to me, you know, Jesus, uh, Jay, uh, Jay, you're normally a pretty, pretty laid-back, mild-mannered guy. It's like, yeah, I am. They were like, you were pretty fired up on Sunday. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I was. Why? Because I get excited about the Word. As I'm in my study, as I'm in my quiet time, y'all, I think about you guys, I'm praying for you, I'm in the word, and when I know what's going on in your life and I see what God's word is teaching us, I get to that moment in my study where my heart is burning within me. Like I literally can't wait to get to Sunday because I can't wait to say, I can't wait to show my people what God has shown me. And that's, you can get there as well, where you have those friends that you are walking with and you find something in the word and you know the Lord has given you that word for them. Not just to build you up, right? But to also encourage others to strengthen them. So it's not just your opinion, but you can point to God's word. We can see God at work through his word, hearts on fire. I love that in the testimonies of many Christians throughout the year, they have talked, over the centuries, they've talked about the power and the sensation of what God does in his word. Blaise Pascal, brilliant philosopher, mathematician, French, in the 1600s, right? As he discovered Christ, as he came to Christ, he wrote one single word in his journal, and that was the word FIRE in all caps, followed by joy, joy, tears of joy. John Wesley wrote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So I love that we can experience Jesus objectively through his truth, which is unassailable, and yet subjectively through the power of his presence at the same time. In this experience of sharing a meal, the breaking of bread, that's when it all came together for the disciples. Rosaria Butterfield also writes this, that both of these things are a gift and grace. I love this. Grace does not make the hard thing go away, but grace illumines the hard thing with eternal meaning and purpose. You see, the circumstance didn't change, right? But the knowledge that Jesus was alive and they had experienced him, well, that changed everything for them. And that leads us to our fifth movement in the story, and that's you go and tell now without fear. In the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, in all the Gospel stories about the resurrection of Jesus, there is this movement, right? This commission to go and tell. What does it say happened? Well, immediately, that very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. Now, I've already told you, nightfall is happening. It's the Middle East. Do you travel on strange roads late at night in the Middle East? No. 
There's bandits. There's robbers. We all know the story of the Good Samaritan. And so we know that that was a dangerous situation for them to be in. The highway patrol isn't out at night, right? In the Middle East to save you if you get into trouble. But here's the reality. Their hearts were so full. They were so encouraged that their fears took a backseat to their faith. And the number one thing that people struggle with in sharing the gospel is fear. We're afraid what people are going to think about us. We're afraid we're not going to have the right answer. We're not going to say the right thing. We're not going to do the right thing. Well, this demonstrates to us that when your heart is on fire and you are full of the resurrected Jesus, nothing will get in your way. So they run seven miles. I can just imagine, right, the theme song, the chariots of fire, right, playing in the background as they're sprinting back up the mountain to Jerusalem. And then it's almost comical because they burst in the door with what they think is novel news. Y'all, Jesus, we've seen him. He's alive. And what do the 11 say? The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Peter, to Simon. And then they pause. And then I'm pretty sure a celebration broke out because they realized it's not just us that Jesus has appeared to. It's Peter and it's the others as well. And this transformed them. They began to describe and retell the story. And by the way, the church has never stopped telling that story. We've never been silenced. We won't stop, can't stop. Why? Because Jesus commissions us to go and tell without fear. It's interesting to me this story, and people have been drawn to it over the centuries. One of those, an artist by the name of Caravaggio. You might know him better as Michelangelo, not the Ninja Turtle, okay, but the Renaissance artist. Not once, but twice, he was so moved by this story that he painted it. I want to show you the second version of that painting. Here it is. It's called The Supper at Emmaus. In the scene, of course, you have Jesus there in the middle. He's raising his hand to bless the bread, the bread seated there on the table. You see Cleopas and his companion, right? One of them is intently leaning in, listening to the words of Jesus. The other has his hands up like this, right? In that aha moment, in that, oh my goodness, I see it. There's a couple of servants in the picture, like Renaissance painters did. They took some artistic liberty, right, with the painting. But what I want you to focus on is the face of Jesus, Art critics note that this is a masterpiece of light and shadow. And the light is focused on the face of Jesus. And it's what's illuminating everything else in the room. When we walk with people on the Maus Road, we who have been drawn to the light of Jesus have the opportunity to reflect that same light to those who are in the shadows of their doubt, their confusion, their disillusionment. All eyes on Jesus as we walk with them. Will you bow your heads with me this morning as we come to this time of response? This morning, aptly, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate communion together because it was in the breaking of the bread that the aha moment happened for these two followers of Jesus. And it's in the ministry, the power of the word and the presence of the spirit that our aha moments happen as well. And so this morning, as you prepare your heart, we're going to have a song that is sung over us. I want you to listen to it carefully, prayerfully. Because in this room, there are two types of people. There are those who are walking the road of confusion, of doubt, of disillusionment. I pray 
that the risen Christ would come to you and open your eyes in this moment that you might respond to the gospel for the very first time. Also in the room today are those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a while. But if we confess and we're honest, sometimes we get to the point that we're walking our own walk and we're not paying attention to the others that Jesus has placed alongside of us. So today we make a confession. Lord, forgive us for not pointing others to the forgiveness and healing and hope that's only in Christ. And we ask the Spirit to make us aware of those who have invited us to walk alongside them on the journey that we can point them to the hope of the resurrected Jesus. So as you pray, as you prepare your heart to take the Lord's Supper, let's listen carefully to these words this morning. Suffering 